Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, Professor of History at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of The War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. After 20 years, the American intervention in Afghanistan is at an end. As Hemingway once wrote, the collapse happened gradually, then suddenly. Operation Enduring Freedom has not endured forever, and the result for too many has been illusory freedom that may now vanish altogether. Scenes of chaos at Kabul airport have shocked international opinion and raised so many questions about how it came to this. Where did it all go wrong? Could it ever have turned out differently? Such questions will occupy planners and scholars for some time to come. Here at A Better Peace, we want to encourage such reconsiderations, drawing on the expertise of our intellectual community at the U.S. Army War College. For that reason, we are delighted to welcome Dr. Larry Goodson into our virtual studio. Professor Goodson is Professor of Middle East Studies at the U.S. Army War College. He holds a Ph.D. from the University of North Carolina and has taught at the Department of National Security and Strategy here at the War College since 2002, while also serving as a member of the Expert Advisory Board to U.S. Central Command, among others. He is the author of many articles and the book, Afghanistan's Endless War, State Failure, Regional Politics, and the Rise of the Taliban. I can think of no one with whom I would rather discuss this complicated subject than Larry Goodson. So welcome to A Better Peace, Larry. Thank you, Ron. Good to see you. So, Larry, explain for the audience briefly your engagement with Afghanistan as a topic of study. Uh, when did it start? Um, how has it developed over the, the time of American engagement in the country? Well, I, gosh, I'm, I'm one of the really, truly old hands on Afghanistan. In the 1970s, my undergraduate work, I, I started on Afghanistan doing some, some papers in the 1980s, I I, uh, I ultimately did my dissertation on Afghanistan. Um, I received a, a American Institute of Pakistan Studies year-long fellowship to go to Peshawar, Pakistan, 1986. And I spent all my time in and out of the tribal area, uh, Afghanistan, of course, as well, studying the war in Afghanistan, the Soviet war against the Afghan Mujahideen in those days, and the refugee crisis that had poured into Pakistan and made it the world's uh, largest recipient of refugees during that period in, in, in that region's history. And, and then after that, my research in the 1990s was very focused on the Taliban in and out of Afghanistan. Um, and then on 2001, September 11th, 2001, I was uh, teaching in Boston before coming to the War College, getting ready to go to Washington that day for a meeting on Afghanistan. Uh, Ahmed Shah Massoud, the famous uh, leader of uh, 
the Pancher uh, rebels uh, against the Soviets uh, had been killed by Osama bin Laden a couple of days before, and I was invited down to an intelligence community meeting, and anyway, we were going to meet. I never made it to uh, Washington on that particular day, obviously. Um, and then thereafter, since my book had just come out at that point, mm -hmm. uh, I became really involved going to all sorts of organizations and being on television and radio and all that sort of thing a lot. And, um, uh, and then ultimately was asked, uh, to be part of the UN effort to manage the emergency lawyer Jirga, which selected uh, Hamid Karzai and so forth in Afghanistan in 2002. And it was after that I came to the War College. And then, as you pointed out, I've subsequently worked for CENTCOM commanders and uh, done various things for the government uh, on Afghanistan since then, until maybe the last few years when mm -hmm. illness and so forth sort of uh, took me away from going out there all the time. Can I ask, what was it that uh, that grabbed you to do a dissertation on Afghanistan? This would have been in the in the 1980s. Was it as a result of having uh, of being aware of the, the the Soviet war in there that made you think about the history of the place? Um, had you uh, what what or was there anything in particular that made you think I want to study Afghanistan? Yeah, I used to get asked that question, Ron, all the time. I bet. Now, of course, and, nobody would ask us. Everybody would, would just assume there's reason. Yeah, exactly. But. No, back back in the, you know, before 9-11 or at, after 9-11, but right around that time, people would ask the question and I just, I said, I wish I had a really sort of <laughs> sexy, clever answer, you know, that, that would, but truthfully, um, but you're right. It was ultimately the Soviet invasion mm -hmm. that that sort of uh, made me focus on it as an international relations topic worthy of attention. Mm -hmm. And I was pretty familiar with the history already. And then um, America's greatest specialist on Afghanistan, Louis Dupree, who taught at West Point, he moved down to Chapel Hill and Durham to teach at Duke and Chapel Hill together and uh and became my professor i was actually his last graduate student and um and so i was benefited by having a guy who really understood and could help me understand the country and and meet people and do all those things so i was i was very fortunate in that regard so yeah that i guess that's the answer as i said it's not terribly yeah clever or sexy but anyway if it, 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 it works you know it has the it has the advantage of being true so yeah, there's there's, there is that right <laughs> um well and historians i'm a historian you're, you're you're a historian right we we think about uh we like to talk about the long-term uh reasons for events but at the same time i know historians can be very impatient when people just sort of shrug their shoulders and say well that area is a problem. It's always been a problem. Or people say things like, you know, Afghanistan graveyard of empires, and they they nod sagely as if that explains everything about what happened. But I am curious, how do you feel the current situation in Afghanistan? What's the balance between sort of long-term, uh, you know, historic forces that are at play here and uh, shorter-term specific policy decisions? Do you think one is more powerful than the other in explaining the outcome of the uh, of, of Operation Enduring Freedom? Okay, so a really good question that 
maybe has a slightly different twist at the end since you'd focused on enduring freedom. I did. Yes, I, I or, did that. Or, or you might say, since you mentioned enduring freedom at the beginning in, in a very clever way, you might also have said our resolute support didn't turn out to be all that resolute. It was a little, uh, it was, it was a little irresolute at the end, perhaps. Yeah, yes. yeah in, in the end. But, uh, but on the other hand, maybe it's impossible for, for, for us to really remain there indefinitely. I used to tell people throughout all these years of government service, I used to say, Afghanistan can be repaired. It can be made whole again. It could be, you know, whatever it was before because of all the incredible destruction that happened prior to our coming there uh, that had to be repaired and rebuilt if we stay for three generations. So that's what, 75 years or so? Mm-hmm. I wasn't really thinking we were going to do that. I'm pretty sure no one else was, and clearly President Biden and before him President Trump were not thinking of doing that either. So uh, in any event, failing that, it's hard to really rebuild that country. But to, to the point that you asked, I and mean, it's really a good point, both factors are decisive in Afghanistan's case, not so much Seth Jones's notion of graveyard of empires, although he's not wrong about that, but more the 19th century great game, maybe between the British and the Russians might be a better way of thinking about it, that, that traditionally, the way I see it is that Afghanistan was viewed by outside actors as a, as a, as an arena where you came to play games. So you you showed up with your soccer team against uh, the other guy's soccer team. You played it in this arena that was Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And probably the Afghan sport of Buskashi would be a better example than a soccer team because the game was kind of rough. Mm-hmm. And if you mm-hmm. killed some Afghans along the way, well, you know, you killed some Afghans along the way. That's what happened for centuries in Afghanistan. Outside powers did things there, and they often used what we now call proxies to mm-hmm. try to uh, to advance those things. They did it with small numbers of their own troops or political agents or whatever, and used more the local troops. But to the point of the graveyard of empires, if they were ever dumb enough to put their troops in there, we can think of the British a couple of times. We could think of the Russians more just to the north of Afghanistan a number of times. Then uh, bad things could happen to those troops because they're out in the middle of nowhere in relation to where these European powers uh, or now the United States is far away from the, from the country. So those realities have always been, um, you know, significant there. Mm-hmm. And and significant in the context that uh, that I would add to that, I guess, and then to to the other side of your your question, I would add to that that Afghanistan, because it was ultimately created as a as a nation state or as a state anyway, um, by virtue of these outside powers, right, drawing the boundaries in ways that would protect and uh, them um, because of that 
the reality of the ethnic groups or the identity groups, the linguistic groups, the sectarian division between Sunni and Shia that exists in the country, all of that didn't really fit any natural borders. Every ethnic group in Afghanistan, with the exception of the Hazara in the middle of the country, overlaps into neighboring countries. So all of these countries have built-in proxies if they want to become involved there. The Pashtun who overlap into Pakistan along with the Baluch and the Brahi and the Nuristani. And then, of course, the Chahar Aymak and all these uh, Western Afghans that overlap into Iran and the Tajiks for Tajikistan, the Uzbeks, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan for Turkmenistan, the Kyrgyz for Kyrgyzstan all of those folks in the north, and even the Hazara in the center, because they're Shia, mm. they overlap into, or they, they're, they're, they're patrons, if you will, are in Iran. And so um, those realities, which are realities of today, are very hard to overcome mm -hmm. if neighboring countries want to manipulate things uh, in Afghanistan. And of course, as you know, I teach on Kaltia at the War College, and I often tell people that the Kaltian view of the world from the Indian author of the Artha Shastra is that, among other things, that you want to get behind your neighbors so that if you've got a problem with, say, I don't know, say you're India with Pakistan, you want people in Afghanistan on the backside of Pakistan, from your point of view, to create problems for Pakistan on both sides. India sure. has done that. Pakistan, of course, wants their people in Afghanistan, and, and that's how these kinds of proxified great games occur uh, in a place like Afghanistan. So what we saw all along the ages, right, the great mm -hmm. games or the, uh, the, the, the losing of an empire in Afghanistan appears to uh, still be going on, maybe in a different way today, but still going on. Well, and, and so that gets to the question. Uh, when people are looking around today, <clears throat> they talk about the American involvement in Afghanistan, and they say, what went wrong? Um, or they say, you know, when when was the right time to end this, end American engagement? And so I put that question to you. Are there moments where the uh, American intervention in Afghanistan uh, could have reached a suitable culmination and uh, and an, an end. Or once the United States decided to get involved with its own troops, was there some kind of uh, uh, border that had been crossed that would lead inevitably to what we have what we have experienced here at the end of August? So uh, also really a good question. I mean, I can give my answer, but it probably is different from other people's. But um, we're, here, my, we're here to hear you, uh, Larry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I get it. So my view on that, you know, we just taught, as you know very well, and our students know, we just taught about the Gulf War mm -hmm. this past week at the War College. And George Herbert Walker Bush had laid out, in effect, four uh, objectives that he hoped to achieve in the in the Gulf War, and um, I've always kind of had a problem. And during that war, we talked a lot about Weinberger Doctrine, the Powell Doctrine, and all these things. Vital interests is when you go to war, and all that sort of thing. All good, 
But the problem I've always had is when you have more than one real goal, mm -hmm. then it becomes problematic because you might achieve one goal and the other one might take a lot longer or, or, mm -hmm. or, or, or perhaps um, the one that you think is going to take longer is shorter and the other one takes longer that you thought was going to be uh, easier to accomplish. So, you know, um, in Afghanistan, we went in really for two reasons. We went in there because of 9-11. Um, and so we went in there to, in effect, avenge ourselves mm -hmm. against uh, Osama bin Laden. I had a number of conversations with senior people in the government about separating the Taliban from Al-Qaeda, that if we decided to fight the Taliban, that was going to be a different kind of fight than if we went after Al-Qaeda mm -hmm. um, early on. And, and, and so I remember that as a, as a real challenge. Uh, of course, uh, the Taliban and Al-Qaeda fled into Pakistan early in, in our involvement there. For the most part, they did anyway. Now, of course, later, um, some of that would bleed back into uh, Afghanistan. Uh, but our initial focus was to go after bin Laden and, and the Al-Qaeda leadership. Uh, that, as it turns out, took a long time to resolve, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. He wasn't killed until 10 years later uh, into the conflict. Everyone thought it would happen. You know, any minute, we all remember George Bush, the younger George Bush, with his uh, deck of cards, you know, and all that sort of thing. It was supposed to happen very fast. Dead or alive. Right, dead or alive. Now, the other side of the issue was much harder, uh, has always been harder. It's why mm -hmm. I said we should be there for three generations, because the other side of the issue said, hey, we, we've got to make Afghanistan a place that can't be uh, uh, a cauldron of terror. It can't be another, it can't be a, a state that supports terrorism against the United States and the international community going forward. Well, how the hell were we supposed to do that? I mean, George Bush had run for president against nation building because that was something that there was concern that Bill Clinton was in favor of prior and Bush was running against Al, Al Gore, right? Clinton's mm -hmm. vice president. So when he came in, all of the nation-building kind of uh, uh, um, national security, I forget what they were called in the Clinton years, but the national security directives of the National Security Council, that was set aside, which is what administrations do when they come into office. So, you know, from the beginning, the administration was trying to figure out exactly what to do. And um, and no one really knew what to do, because if you asked the handful of Afghan specialists, we would all say, well, you're dealing with a bunch of warlords over there. You're, I mean, the average human being over there is down on their knees. They've been beaten down by decade-long war. And so... Uh, you're going to have to build everything. You're going to have to build roads. You're going to have to build schools. You're going to have to build every bit of infrastructure. You're going to have to build a government. You're going to have to build an army. You know, everything had to be done. And um, so did we do that right? Well, who knows? Uh, obviously not, not well enough if the army melts away. 
when they're when the, when the fight comes but but beyond that it all had to be done from scratch with no real plan for how to do it and a president god bless him i'm not really blaming him but a president who didn't really want to do that mm-hmm. um uh, he didn't run for office he didn't come into office wanting to do that and so um and so all that was a real challenge and it took a long time and there was a lot of effort and a lot of false starts and we're going to do this. No, we're going to switch and do it this other way. I could walk you through loads of that. But I mean, the reality is, um, to answer your question in a more succinct way, you couldn't leave Afghanistan until we got bin Laden. Um, and then once you got bin Laden, since that took place a lot later than it was supposed to, by then we were kind of well along in the in the what I always have called nation building or state mm-hmm. building process, even if even if we were doing it poorly or even if it couldn't be done because of the realities of corruption and other things on the ground in Afghanistan. So that's, that's a fascinating paradox, Larry. If I if I understand what you're saying here, is that uh, the job that people thought was going to be the short term job is catch the people who did nine eleven. And if perhaps that that job had been accomplished in short order, we wouldn't have gotten so deep into the nation building that we would feel the the sunk cost. Right? Is that fair? So Correct. We we would have been out for mm-hmm. I think for yeah. sure if we had gotten Bin Laden by the time of the emergency lawyer Jirga in two thousand and two, we would have said, "Okay, good job, good job, go get him, Afghanistan." Yeah, well, well, yeah. well. Then let me ask you this unfair question. Um, I'm warning you in advance, but this is an unfair question, but I have to ask somebody who studies Afghanistan. Would we, would this all have worked out better if we had never decided to invade Iraq in 2003? Did it, in other words, did Iraq distract us from resolving the Afghanistan question? Or if, if bin Laden had escaped to Pakistan and the Pakistanis were going to protect him, he was already lost to us before we decided to go into Iraq. Okay, so the Iraq question is a is is a fair question. It's okay. an important question, and we all now know from uh, one of Bob Woodward's books that uh, uh, that some of the you know we gotta close the accounts with Iraq. Some of his people, I'm thinking of Doug Fyth and 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 Paul Wolfowitz right now, mm-hmm. were telling. President Bush, the day after 9-11, we've got to go into Iraq. Mm. And President Bush is scratching his head going, well, what are, what are you talking about? We got this Afghanistan thing going on. So anyway, I mean, that's ancient history now in a way. But, um, but it clearly was, it clearly made Afghanistan into the forgotten war. Mm-hmm. Um, and forgotten to the American public, right? I mean, obviously in the military, you know, people were going out there on these one-year assignments, and sometimes those assignments meant that you were kind of in the front line, and a lot of times they meant you were in a a fort or a base somewhere, and you weren't really in the front line until later when the insider attacks began to happen, right? But um, but in any event... Um, it made Afghanistan into a forgotten war. I remember one of our senior generals used to tell me, you know, he kind of liked being the forgotten war because it meant he could 
do things without being constantly overseen by the Pentagon, which would look, you know, east towards Afghanistan, but would be interrupted by Iraq being in between. Right. And, and okay, I mean, I, I get that. I think the bigger problem, though, and I've thought about this a great deal, um, I remember way back at the beginning telling someone sort of facetiously, if you want me to get bin Laden, and by which I really meant, if you want someone who knows the region and knows the sort of counterterrorism, so really the CIA, you know, or someone like that, you need to send those people to Pakistan and and let us put the money ab- about and see if we could figure out where he is because we knew he was in Pakistan. Mm-hmm. We just didn't know exactly where. Um, and then you've got to figure out what you're going to do about it right. if you find out where he is. Um, and uh, eventually, of course, under the Obama administration, all those issues were resolved and they took the action that actually involved us invading a sovereign state that wasn't part of the conflict and mm-hmm. in, in the strict sense of the word, but um, to, to, uh, to resolve that. So um, I felt like the, the mistake early on, not that I would have done this, obviously, I was just trying to say, you can't do it with military people. You're going to have to send people that know the region. There are right. not too many of us that know the region, but there were some, and those people need to be going out trying to resolve this. But if we could have done that quicker, um, and then with everything going in Iraq, Iraq might have allowed us to close Afghanistan and get out before all of this happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, that's all just sort of idle speculation Indeed. about how history might have been otherwise. But you did you you pointed out a, an important thing, and that is lots of people who are talking about the, the situation today talk about how uh, the American decision-making and American behavior in the last few months or the last few years has undermined American credibility with our allies. You know that we, if we won't stand by Afghanistan, how do we know that we'll stand by? You know, people say, well, "Will we stand by Taiwan? Will we stand by Israel?" I want to set that question aside for a second because I think that can go a little too far. But I do want to flip it around and say, what does our experience in Afghanistan say about the difficulties that the United States has in sort of understanding and uh, I would say, I would say, sort of getting credible cooperation from our allies, especially our ally next door to Afghanistan, that um, does the, what's the future of the United States-Pakistan relationship now? Because I can see it. I I mean, I'm not not an area expert like you are, but I can definitely see opening up a newspaper in a couple of weeks and listening to some and, and hearing that the Pakistanis say they need more aid from the United States to protect against the spread of extremism in the region. After they have essentially helped to undermine the American presence in Afghanistan. And how should that, what's the future of that relationship? Yeah, that also, good question. (laughs) Uh, Thank you for that question. Um, uh, So, you know, gosh, some of my fondest memories of my life are of Pakistan. So I I hate to say anything that uh, the Pakistanis will be unhappy with. Uh, but to be honest, um, I think our relationship with 
with Pakistan might be waning very significantly. And, and here's why, if I can, if I can give a little context behind it. Uh, some years ago, when President Obama was in office, I went to uh, India on a, on a, on a track two mission, as I've told you in the past. And, um, and I remember the home minister on the first night standing in front of our little team uh, and presenting a lecture in front of a, a slide that said, or a banner that said, uh, India-U.S. Strategic Partnership. And I knew then what was going to be presented to President Obama a month later when he came for his first state visit out there. And indeed, that's what happened. And they signed the strategic partnership. I came back and, and was back when all that uh, happened. And we were at the end of the academic year at the War College. And someone, I believe probably the, the uh, grand leader of our department, Frank Jones, I think perhaps is the one, but someone mm-hmm. pointed out and and I didn't realize this until until it was done, that while uh, President Obama was in New Delhi signing that agreement, the leader of China had gone uh, to uh, Rawalpindi and Islamabad and had signed 32 or 33 agreements with the mm-hmm. Pakistanis. Uh, uh, that would pave the way for the uh, China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, part of the Belt Road Initiative, and and deepen the relationship between China uh, and Pakistan. I think now, all all this time later, you know, a decade later, I think now it's it's the case that the U.S.-Pakistani relationship might be uh, declining. And it used to be, and I've been out there sometimes in a kind of official capacity, not official, but, uh, you know, there on behalf of some senior leader or something. And you'll be, you'll be brought into the foreign affairs ministry and they'll, they'll send someone to lecture you. You have abandoned us four times. And yes, we have. And you're sitting there thinking, or has it been five times? I'm not really sure. It's been a lot of times, you're right, that from your point of view, the United States came, promised, did something, and then walked away. Because, and this goes to something President Biden said the other day, we don't really have any interest in Afghanistan. Well, we used to have interest in Pakistan, right? They were part of the uh, Baghdad Pact, the Central Treaty or Treaty Organization during the Cold War era. Um, but really our interests aren't as significant there. They're a long ways away. And even if they are the fifth largest country in the world with nuclear weapons and an an ongoing problem with India. Another nuclear power. Another (laughs) nuclear power and the second largest country in the world and one that we have a strategic partnership with. Pakistan and the United States really aren't that close. Hmm. Um, and I think, uh, I think the rise of China and the move of China in this area, China, of course, has issues with India too, uh, have, has largely set the United States uh, aside now. Hmm. So I'm, m- my expectation is that, of course, they'll, they'll try to 
make the argument perhaps that you uh, suggested that you know they need more money the united states uh, has to help and so forth even as they have turned around and helped foster the taliban that came in and and took over uh afghanistan so quickly um but i i kind of feel like our relationship there has declined mm. and and that perhaps future Larry Goodsons will go out there and will not be lectured uh, about all the times because it really won't matter anymore. Uh, I don't know. I, a, that's my thought to that. The other thing I would say, uh, you didn't ask this question. I thought you might, but um, you went in this other really interesting direction. But um, we have a problem. All great mm -hmm. powers have a problem. Uh, as our students will soon learn when they read their Peloponnesian War, all great powers have a problem with partners and allies yeah. because you naturally see partners like the Afghans or the Kurds uh, in Syria or northern Iraq as useful for you so you send these people out there to work with them, but those people can't work with with a a proxy supporter um, without telling that proxy supporter, "I'm here for you. I'm part of you. We're and we're going to go into combat together if they're soldiers, right? We're going to do these things together." And you can't sort of do all of that and say, oh, yeah, but whenever they tell me to leave, I'm going to leave and you're going to be left here holding the bag. So good luck. I mean, it doesn't work that way, right? I mean, you can't tell them that, but that's always potentially true, right? I mean, if because if, if I'm a visitor, I'm going to leave. I might leave. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. It's, it is true. And uh, as I wrote in War Room a couple years ago about the Kurds, uh, when asked about uh, this situation with the Kurds back in the 70s, uh, Henry Kissinger said, uh, covert action is not missionary work, mm -hmm. uh, which is a shockingly realist thing for, for, but of course, this is Henry Kissinger. Of course, he said that, but, <laughs> but I mean, uh, and it you happened. You suppose in the he read Cautilia, uh, Larry? Yeah, he probably wrote Cautilia, but, uh, uh, but he said that in Congress, so no one really paid any attention to it, right? It was just a congressional hearing. It came and went, and, and then it was gone. But, I mean, it's it's the reality mm -hmm. of, of what you're saying. Of course you're going to leave. Right. This is a challenge. It's not usually a challenge for a great power because everyone knows this is what the big powers do for the reason that you said and the reason that I said. But it does become a challenge when people begin to think that the great power is slipping mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because if the, if the, because then they begin to say, you can't really trust those people. Right. Well, of course you can't trust, you can't trust anybody in that capacity that you said, but if you start thinking the U S is slipping or China's slipping or, you know, fill in the blank, then, then, then people lose confidence in, in where, where that power might be leading. So Larry, I'm, 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 I'm keeping you a little extra long. Cause I have, I have two questions I want to ask you and I'm going to start I'll with try one. to be quick. That's all right. But this is, but this is one based on what you just said about, you know, when a power, when a great power is slipping, 
its relationship with its partners can take on a different tone. Um, a variation on that is when the great power in question, like let's say, let's say it rhymes with you know flu-nighted flights, right? Let's say if the, if the United States, if, if a, a great power that always wants to say that it is different from other great powers because it stands for values or ideals that are different, you know that you know no one would be surprised when 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 our students read Cautilia or heck when our students read Sun Tzu. Um, when our students talk about realism and they talk about interest and they talk about being hard nosed, um, everybody likes to imagine that you know good hard nosed power you know starts and stops whatever it's going to do whenever it's going to do it. But what if that great power claims to stand for something more, and and claims to say you know we're not just in this for our material interests right we're in this to spread democracy we're in this to spread enlightenment we're in this to spread Western ideas. Is, does that then become a trap of that great power's own devising? Because these are essentially impossible things to do, and and eventually they're always going to fail. This is my this is my this is the question that I've been wrestling with, and I think that a lot of Americans are wrestling with. I mean, so this gets to the ideas: is the problem in Afghanistan that the United States got itself into a position where it was talking about doing things that it knew it could not accomplish in less than three generations? And they also knew they weren't going to stay for three generations, which essentially means we knew all along that we were not going to succeed in transforming Afghanistan and that we were always going to end up with the point that when we left, it was going to be terrible. I, I'm, I, that's, that's, more, that's a statement and a question at the same time. Like, What do we do with that, with that kind of tragic realization that this was a flawed operation from the start? Yeah, so that's a great question. Of course, it's the Woodrow Wilson dilemma, right? <laughs> right? It's the dilemma that's always been there for ever since the United States even contemplated walking away from George Washington's farewell address yeah. and becoming one of the world's leading powers. Mm -hmm. Back when we were in the George Washington era, mm -hmm. and we were just, you know, hey, we're here in the new world, and it's all great, and well, okay, tough for the Indians, but anyway, it's good uh, for everyone else, and it'll all get sorted out here, and we don't want to be involved in any of that great power nonsense over there in Europe. And But eventually, of course, as we rose, and as other countries, Europeans that were caught up in all those fights began to decline, it was clear that we were going to become that. But we had said from the beginning that we were a, a power that stood for, or a country that stood, and then eventually a power that stood for principles and stood for democracy and stood for all of those things that all of our leaders have preached to us about down through through history. And so, I, I mean, I, I think the real challenge that we've always had ever since is how do we live up to those ideals as a great power um, and at the same time pursue our own national interests more narrowly defined the way most countries do because they aren't in that big power seat, or even if they are, they're not doing it from the point of view of principles and interests. Or if they are, you think of maybe the Soviet Union back in, in their era, they did so very firmly with the realism there, even if they were talking about the great communist international and how they were going to change the world and all that. But all of that was very clearly secondary to pursuing 
Russia's or Soviet Union's interests. I've always maintained to my students, and this is where sometimes I part company with folks on the faculty and students at the War College and the general public, that if you that if you are going to be a great power from the American point of view, uh, which is to say with those ideals at the center of your strategic center of gravity, right, that, that, that that's it. People think of America as the land of opportunity, as a place where freedom reigns, where they can come and make something of their life. We're going to now have Afghans coming to America Mm -hmm. trying to do that, right? Uh, And they'll just be another in a long line of people that came to America to to do that. But if, if at some point you can't set aside your interests a little bit, narrowly defined, and step up for your partners and your allies and lead from that point of view, then you're probably going to lose that great power status. Uh, Now, you can make the argument. It certainly applies for the Venetians in an earlier period of time. It applies for the British in an earlier period of time. And you can look back to earlier great powers in history and say, it is possible to reset Mm-hmm. To go back and say, oh, we've lost some of this. Let's refocus on our internal interests, rebuild ourselves, and get back out there and 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 play that role in the world again. But it's but that's a that's a challenge to mm-hmm. to achieve that because in the process of doing that, and we're seeing it right now in the United States, people don't really know what to believe about virtually anything now. And I'm not trying to pick on parties or talk about this or that. I'm just saying, you know, there's disagreement on on all sorts of things. And and so it's very hard then to lead when internally you can't even agree on on the world. But you've really raised a question that is going to be challenging for our students and for our alumni as they go forward in their career. You know, how how do we how do we lead successfully when always in the background is the idea that america has a value based um conception of itself mm-hmm. and therefore always it is possible for our adversaries or even sometimes for our good friends to say, you hypocrites, you're, you've got a double standard. Uh, well, yeah, it's, it's true. It happens when you're trying to lead from a values-based perspective because no one can ever really live up to their values as well as they would like to. See, and, and I guess that's the challenge, right? Is that it, the problem is not is not always. It can sometimes be hypocrisy, but it is often. It's not hypocrisy. It's imperfection. And yeah, you know, would we is. rather That's have right. somebody who didn't even claim to have any values? Um, and because no, if, if I, I don't claim I, to have any, then I can. Then nobody can ever call me a hypocrite because I never told you I was yeah. anything different. Now, now we're talking about. Oh, let's say someone whose name sounds like Vladimir Putin. Right. For example. Uh, for example, <laughs> right. Who, who says, look, this is what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you guys, uh, come on, you know, we would never do anything. 
but I mean, it, of course, I mean, your, your, your point is exactly right. I want you to have values mm -hmm. and I want them to be values that I can aspire to. Mm -hmm. If I'm out in Afghanistan, I want to look to the United States and say, I've heard of this Ron Granieri and he believes in all the things I also believe in. I want to go there and be part of, but imperfection, I agree. It's not hypocrisy. We're accused of that. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, sometimes it is hypocrisy, For sure. but, it, but imperfection is certainly there. We've heard, we heard a lot from President Obama near the end of his term in office or his second term in office that, uh, that the United States was not perfect. We were mm -hmm. still trying mm -hmm. to get there. Right. Um, and now we've heard from a couple of presidents that I think are a little more focused in part, you know, there's been a pandemic and all that, uh, but focused on kind of resetting things and trying to rebuild. But it's, uh, but imperfection is, is definitely the, probably the word that, that best fits here. It's a big challenge though, because, you know, one last little story that maybe illustrates this. Okay. I was giving a lecture at the Royal Jordanian National Defense College several years ago. I think it, in the early days of the Trump administration, but clearly the students were very familiar with the, with the Obama administration and the eight years there. And now they had Trump in there, President Trump in there. And so now there was, you know, kind of a continuation of, America first approach from when Obama was talking about leading from behind in the Middle East. And now uh, President Trump was talking about, you know, uh, America first or make America great again. And I remember a student from not, not from Jordan, from another Arab country standing up and asking me, if you won't lead, what are we to do? Meaning, what should my small Arab country do? What should the Jordanians, what do we do if you, America, won't lead us? And, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, well, you know, if, if you're in Syria, maybe the Russians are going to come in and lead you. Oh, that would never happen. Oh, it sort of has happened now in parts of Syria. Uh, or maybe you'll see a return to the 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 struggle within the region between Turkey and Egypt and Saudi Arabia, or if it would ever to return to a leadership role, Iran in the region, right? Uh, but that that won't be a very peaceful arrangement, right? Because they're they're they have different views, or maybe America will will come back to its role in the region, since this was a regional question. But really, it's a global question. The world has seen the United States as the leader for your and my lifetime mm -hmm. um, and for all the lifetime of the students that we have now, the, the somewhat younger students. They get younger uh, every then, year. Larry. Yeah, they do. I don't know how that's happening. But anyway, so, I mean, that's, you know, that's a real challenge. I don't know the answer to that. Mm -hmm. I've never forgotten that question. I tell my students every year about it when we talk about this topic. Well, so who leads? Right. Is it China with the Belt Road Initiative and the rising role that it's playing in the world? As we were discussing with Pakistan a little bit ago, um, maybe it is. Uh, and maybe the era of the United States leadership is beginning to come to an end. Or maybe we just have to reset ourselves 
recommit to our values and and find a way not to go into conflicts that we're going to walk away from at some point, demonstrating irresolute support and uh, uh, operation during freedom that is no longer so enduring. I, I you know, to your earlier point. That's all right. Yeah. So I, anyway, so that's we 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 want to avoid future irresolution and future failures of endurance. Um, Larry, this yeah. has been a this has been a fantastic conversation. We obviously we've talked about a lot. There's a lot more that we could talk about. I know there are probably more questions that are on the minds of listeners. Um, I hope that we can have you back again to talk about some more of these things, both the the longer term historical perspective and the issues of uh, specific policy. But I think that we have reached the end of this conversation for today. So thank you so much for joining us today on a better piece, Larry Goodson. Uh, thank you. And thanks very much for the reality that you have this uh, podcast that uh, you bring people for us to listen to. And I'm pleased to have had a small role in it. Outstanding. And thanks to all of you for listening in. Please send us your comments on this program and all of our programs. Send us suggestions for future programs. Please subscribe to A Better Peace on your podcatcher of choice. And after you have subscribed, because why wouldn't you subscribe to A Better Peace? Please rate and review this podcast because that's how more people can hear about us so that we can continue to grow this community for conversations like this one. This conversation is over, but we look forward to welcoming you again. Until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.